Dutch politics is a response to events abroad, usually. Since 2008, Dutch politics has been shaped by the global financial crisis, then by the euro crisis, by the pandemic, by the migrant crisis of 2015. So you have this very large centre that just has to respond to what happens abroad, always with an eye over its shoulder at the extreme right, worrying that it will go above 20%, which it never has. And that's sort of the context of Dutch politics, whoever is the government. In 2011, Francis Fukuyama described the problem of creating modern political institutions as one of, quote-unquote, getting to Denmark. The country, in his own words at the time, was a mythical place known for its stable, democratic, peaceful, prosperous, and inclusive institutions, virtually free of any political corruption. A few miles south of Denmark lie the Netherlands, a country that just last week renewed Mark Rutte's mandate to lead a, a government coalition, albeit from a somewhat reshuffled parliamentary landscape this time. Our two guests this week will highlight a gradual shift in the core of Dutch politics towards a new blend of fiscal hawkishness, moderate Euroscepticism, and even a somewhat less liberal social policy than has been the Dutch norm. No other country, however, has in our judgment journeyed further into the emergence of the proverbial third way and the technocratization of vast swaths of government policy. Simon Cooper of the Financial Times and Rem Kordeweg of the Klingendale Institute will walk us through the Fukuyama-esque cliches that, uh, that may have been borne out in this latest election, whilst at the same time giving due warning that not everything is as may rosily seem the Dutch low countries. Enjoy the episode. We are so glad to have with us two seasoned observers of Dutch politics and society. Simon Cooper is a veteran columnist at the Financial Times, who's covered nearly every topic you can think of from sports to currency, and is a long-time follower of all things Dutch, from its football to its language. He's the author of Spies, Lies, and Exile in Russia, the extraordinary story of George Blake on the infamous Soviet spy George Blake. Rem Korteweg is a senior research fellow at the Klingendale Institute, where you cover, among other things, foreign policy, trade, and poor you Brexit. Rem was a former policy advisor to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So let's get, let's get into it. This election, I think it's fair to say, is a triumph for Mark Rutte. He's been the prime minister for the past 11 years. He struggled with more coalitions than anyone I can think of, with parties on the right, parties on the left, parties on the centre. He survived the 2008 crisis, the sovereign debt crisis, the migration wave of 2015. And now he comfortably wins the election despite COVID-19 and political scandals. We call him Teflon Mark for a reason, but why does he owe that success? After 11 years in office, is there also some kind of agenda we can look like, we can uh, pinpoint to retrospectively? And how do you think his legacy is shaping up? Maybe Rem first. Well, I think, first of all, thank you for, for having me on the on the podcast. Um, Mark Rutte is, is an exceptional politician to the extent that um, he rightly deserves the label of being Teflon Mark. It doesn't really matter what you throw at him. Apparently, it doesn't stick. I mean, these elections took place in the context of a major benefit scandal, which harmed thousands of Dutch citizens. And that all happened under his watch. But when you look at the election result, it didn't really matter. In fact, 
the two parties that were most responsible for bringing this benefit scandal to the fore actually suffered in the polls and lost seats. So why is this? And if there's one way to describe Mark Rutte, it's that he's a very pragmatic, tactical operator, more like a, a manager rather than a, a big visionary politician. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But he just he just does really well in the short game of politics. And I think also he doesn't he's not squeamish about sacrificing his own. So when you look at how many ministers from his own party actually resigned or who were forced to resign because of scandals that surrounded his government, I think it's quite quite telling that he's still there, almost at Olympian heights, and the rest is just kind of suffering that um, his success. And Simon, do you think it's fair to, fa- to say there's something Merkel-esque about uh, Rutte to some extent? I think as with Germany, you've got to look at the longer term and see that like German chancellors, Dutch prime ministers tend to serve a very long time with very high levels of public approval. So since 1982, there's only been four prime ministers. And that's also the period that the Dutch economy has done uh, very well for much of that time, 1981 to 2007. I think there was a world record GDP growth unbroken 26 years. So the Netherlands is a fairly easy country to be prime minister of if you're, as Rem says, Rutte is a manager, somebody without great ideals, without great visions, who just says, you know, I'm going to sit somewhere near the center of politics, run the large coalition in the Netherlands. It always is quite a large coalition of centrist parties of center left, center right. And just not try and do anything very ambitious, which Dutch voters don't want. I mean, this is a, a country with very high levels of contentment. In happiness surveys, the Netherlands is usually near the top of the world. Even during the pandemic, people um, rate their happiness, and this is constantly studied in the Netherlands, with somewhere between 7 and 8 out of 10. And so there is a demand for a prime minister who is Dutch, just a manager. I think you need to see the Dutch prime minister as sort of the chief civil servant, And Dutch policy is pre-cooked by uh, the civil service, by academic advisors, by trade unions sitting down with employers. So there isn't a huge room for maneuver. So, yes, Rutte is the man who manages the process. And so we just had the election right now. And we say that Mark Rutte is the big winner. But more generally, who are the big winners and losers of the election alongside Rutte and his VVD party? And... It's a bit early for this because coalition building in the Netherlands is uh, famously a very uh, uh, long uh, process. But what kind of coalition can we expect to see to emerge out of this parliament? I think there's been three clear winners this election and one very clear loser. The First of all, I mean, Mark Rutte is a winner. And it's worth emphasizing that it's Mark Rutte that won, not necessarily his VVD party. The campaign was all about him. The VVD's campaign strategy revolved all around him as being the safe pair of hands, the prime minister in charge of the country in a moment of crisis. It it is really to his credit. Now, a second winner is uh, the D66 uh, Liberal Democrats. Um, Actually, they won. They gained more seats than the VVD won. uh, And they've now gone from being the number three party 
to the number two party, which puts them in a very comfortable position to help shape uh, a next coalition. The third winner or group of winners, if you will, is the, the Eurosceptic bloc. We've seen um, alongside Geert Wilders, who many of your listeners will arguably know, um, we've seen uh, the uh, success of Thierry Baudet and his Forum for Democracy, who went from two to eight seats. And we've seen a third um, populist right-wing copycat party emerging under the nomer of Ya21, which is an abbreviation for the correct answer 21. Which they're, they're, they're kind of a standard run-of-the-mill Eurosceptic populist right-wing party. So now it's three parties and together they have achieved a um, number of, vo- uh, of seats which um, we haven't seen uh, at any time in, the, in recent history. So they have 28 seats, about 18% of the population um, voted for them. So those are the three clear winners. Now, who's the loser? Um, I think it's fair to say that the left lost. Um, Left-wing parties did very poorly. They did poorly, whether you look at social democrats who weren't able to improve on their very dramatic result at the polls in 2017. They suffered a 75% vote loss in 2017, and they, they stayed at um, the same the same level this time around. The Green the Green Party, Green Groen Links, um, they saw their seat numbers half. Socialist Party did very uh, poorly. So what you can say is that Dutch politics has really moved to the right in this election. There isn't really a um, left wing opposition to speak of. Um, Fifteen years ago, the left wing pop uh, the left wing parties had sixty five seat- seats in Parliament. They're now down to twenty five. And so there's something happening in terms of Dutch politics that we've shifted to the right. At the same time, it's worth emphasizing again that the Eurosceptics did well, but so did the pro-European parties. So there's a new cleavage running, I think, through Dutch politics, which suggests that Europe is another issue we should be monitoring closely in a Dutch context. And Simon, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert on coalition building, but I, I, would, I would expect the bad news for VVD is you probably want to be the kind of central party within a coalition. Isn't there a risk that the future coalition would lean a bit too far to the left for Rutte's um, comfort? I mean, I think it's difficult to talk about right and left when it comes to the parties in the coalition in the Netherlands, because for the last decade, the parties on the extreme right are not considered coalition material. Wilders supported the coalition until 2012. That's unlikely to happen again. And the parties of the left, you know, beyond the centre-left, have also been excluded. So you get always a coalition of various centrist parties, and you can say, well, you know, BVD is centre-right, and uh, D66 is maybe centre-left or centre But these differences are really quite small. It's hard for outsiders to perceive big differences, especially because you then get four or five parties together. So the uh, differences start to fade. Uh, It it makes more sense to think of it as one large centrist party that is always governing with tiny nuances to right and left, which don't matter that much because Dutch politics is a response to events abroad usually. So since 2008, Dutch politics has been shaped by the global financial crisis, then by the euro crisis, by the pandemic, by the uh, migrant crisis of 2015. So 
you have this very large center that just has to respond to what happens abroad and always with an eye over its shoulder at the extreme right, you know, worrying that it will go above 20%, which it never has. And that's sort of the context of Dutch politics, whoever is the government. Right. So let, let's uh, parse out kind of the trajectories of, of each of these specific parties and set them in, a, in the wider context of me the, the, the past 20 to, to 30 years. And, uh, you know, it was so coincidental. I was reading this morning a, uh, a, a, uh, a political science text uh, looking at, uh, you know, what, what political scientists uh, call realignments and uh, D66, which has now, it seems like, has greater leverage over any possible coalition that will emerge out of out of uh, VVD. Uh, this particular text looked at D66 as a, as a case study of uh, a party that uh, was kind of ahead of its own game and kind of uh, carving out this new socially liberal uh, elite cosmopolitan niche within within the spectrum. Uh, and, and again, that was way ahead of uh, anything uh, that, that that was to happen in other uh, European countries decades after that, right? Uh, the, the sort of the Tony Blair third way uh, and other so, uh, socially liberal um, cosmopolitan parties of, of that of that nature. And, you know, speaking of speaking of getting to Holland or the sort of end of history bearing out in, in the supply side of the party system, what do you what do you think that what do you think uh, the D sixty six's trajectory over the years tells about you know Dutch life and Dutch society as a whole? Is you know uh, it, it's also very striking as as one of you has alluded to already that. Uh, the the uh, aggregate uh, number of seats that the left uh, can pull together is also at, at you know all time lows. They've they've uh, they seem to have this sort of gentleman's agreement where uh, they will only accept to be part of a uh, of, of negotiation uh, of negotiations if if the the social democrats and the greens come into it together, right? And it seems like you know the social democrats are no longer sort of a, a big player. And what does that what does that tell about Dutch society? One of you has alluded the, the cleavage. Shifting to the right, right, the, the epicenter uh, shifting to the right. Where's the um, lefty electorate? Where, where's the you know middle to lower class, welfare-minded electorate? Is there a shift of that electorate towards the hard right in in much the same way that we've seen, for instance, in France, where the hardcore left electorate is now more prone to voting for the hard right candidate? Uh, very briefly, the Netherlands is much more than most in Europe an overwhelmingly middle class nation now with high levels of education. So there is a shrinking working class, you know, if you identify it by education, say, a lot of it which does vote for builders. But really, the successful parties have more middle-class electorates like D66 and VVD. So, you know, this is not, this is not France in that way. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd add that one of the features of D66's success this time around is that they were able to absorb a lot of voters that otherwise tended to vote for social democrats or GroenLinks or even the socialists. And so you could argue that the success of D66 is the loss uh, collectively of the, of the left. And this is a problem that D66 is going to confront in the coalition formation process because it it wants to build a coalition together with a number of left-wing parties, perhaps at least, well, at least one, to offset the right-wing pull of the VVD. But they're not really there anymore because all those voters have moved to D66 this time around. I, I think it's worth underlining that the Dutch 
are notoriously undecided in their and on disloyal in in their in their voting allegiance so uh, up until uh, a week before the election about 70% of the electorate was undecided and so it's it's very difficult to draw clear cut conclusions that what happened this time around is also a guarantee for uh, for elections four years down the down the road um but i think it's true i think that what you mentioned, Jorge, that there is a a move in some groups that traditionally voted for, say, the Socialist Party, that all of a sudden the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric of Wilders or even Forum for Democracy sounds quite appealing. So there is some bleeding of the hard left towards the hard right. But I think this time around, the, the dominant trend has been that Sigrid Kaag, the leader of the D66 uh, party, really had the momentum at some point and and was able to um, to suck dry support for for other uh, center left and 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 harder left wing parties. Yeah, just to say why D66, I think it's partly because they distinguish themselves by being aggressively pro-European and saying the Netherlands has to behave like an EU member state and think of itself that way. And that was a rare offering because most of the other centrist parties had shied away from that. And you see that also in the success of the small um, Europhile party vault. So there is a Dutch electorate, you know, a minority electorate of, say, 20% plus, that is much more uh, pro-European than the group represented by Rutte. I, I, think, that's, I think that's true. But... Um, where I think a number of left-wing parties really made a mistake is that they they had this gentleman's agreement and no one knows what this gentleman's agreement means. Uh, I mean, you already see the maneuverings by both the Social Democrats and Groenlinks separately to want to go into bed with the VVD and, and, uh, and D66 in the coalition formation talks. But this assumption that if you vote for one of these parties, actually the other has to do very well as well. Otherwise your vote is simply lost because they've already um, announced that they would only go into government together. I think was a an obstacle when the um, other proposition is Sigrid Kaag, who, who presented herself as different leadership. I mean, that was her, sort of her, her slogan. And she did that from a position of being in the government. So for undecided voters that, are sort of center left or progressive. Um, the Kaag pitch, aside from what I mean, Simon is correct. The pro EU factor mattered, although that wasn't something she was campaigning heavily on. Um, the, the the notion that she was the only progressive inside go- inside government, and actually said, "Well, this is where I want to be, and I'm not going to make any type of gentleman's agreement that's going to confine my options in any coalition formation process." I think that also helped give her that credibility that if you vote for her, that that it, that's going to deliver in terms of governing power. Just a precision for our viewers, Kaag is the leader of uh, D66. She's a former diplomat. Well, th- this is all tremendously useful. And let, let's try to shift the focus here to the uh, some of the internecine uh, battles that are going on on the hard right. Um, you know, the they're, 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 they're always seem to be the sort of uh, gulf between the um, the sort of the um, deplorable hard right that Gervilt uh, Vildas uh, represents, right in, ter- in terms of the the, uh, the anti-Islam Islam um, uh, rhetoric uh, that has come to define his party, and and the more respectable um, uh, 
fringe of the, the hard right, right, which is a mantle that has been uh, cre- increasingly picked up by uh, uh, Thierry Baudet's party, notwithstanding the, the recent uh, uh, series of, of uh, scandals. Um, and so it, it seems like these two rather different uh, persuasions are claiming the mantle of, you know, the, the pimp for twin, right, uh, uh, persuasion, right, a sort of civilizationalist uh, right uh, that is also, you know, very um, fiscally hawkish and Eurosceptic. Uh, but I, I, I wonder, uh, you know, how, how that um, end of the spectrum is, is faring in this particular context. I mean, there does seem, uh, and following uh, Thierry Baudet's uh, series of, of um, comments that were uh, taken to, to, to be anti-Semitic uh, and, uh, you know, wondering uh, kind of what your thoughts are on, on that. But, uh, um, you know, it seems like um, it seems like there's still that gap that may be very hard to bridge. Uh, members of a series of members, particularly in the European Parliament, but, but a series of, of members of uh, Bode's party were very quick to leave, to desert uh, the Forum for Democracy and are now uh, the, the kind of the vanguard of, of JA21. And though in that sort of persuasion, a more sort of techno, uh, techno-populist almost um, politics, that, that seems... Uh, very uh, just uh, very far away from from gear builders, right? So, what are what's what's that what's what's that um, what's that coalition looking like? It seems like there's a, a very wide spectrum of voters that can be you know that can see eye to eye on most of the issues, but the supply side of the party system is is giving them uh, just this this very this mosaic of parties. What, what's what's that part of the the spectrum uh, looking like in your view? Uh, whoever wants to to jump in first. I'll, I'll go first. Um, so it's it's quite fascinating what's happening on the on the hard right. Um, so you have Wilders who still comes in third. He's the third largest party at the moment. He lost three seats. Most of those seats actually went to Jerry Baudet. They are kind of each other's yin and yang. So the one's support is the other the other's loss, and they they've been kind of interchangeable um, in terms of. Uh, getting the the, the the hard right vote. And Simon already alluded to the fact that give or take a couple of percentage points, support for Eurosceptic populist right-wing parties is rather stable. They've it, it sort of gravitates between 15 and 20% of the of the electorate. Um and uh, if you go back into history over the past couple of elections, you know, the PVV uh, at some point uh, had 24 seats by itself. Now the three parties, the three Eurosceptic parties amongst them have 28. So it's not a, not a huge difference. What was interesting to watch during this campaign, however, is that Geert Wilders and Thierry Baudet had very different campaign strategies. So Wilders... Um, was emphasizing, I mean, everyone was talking about the corona crisis, of course, he was emphasizing the fact that healthcare was uh, was underfunded, that uh, Mark Rutte was sending billions to bail out Southern European countries that could otherwise be used to help uh, to help our healthcare. Um, and of course, he was making the, anti, uh, the anti-immigrant uh, uh, pitch. Thierry Baudet went full-on uh, corona conspiracy. He started to make this case that Corona doesn't exist. It's not worse than the flu. Uh, the, the, the vaccines are a hoax. Um, he was taking a leaf from Donald Trump's playbook to the degree that he was saying, look, we need to simply open up 
um, he, he was promoting a, a freedom caravan as part of his campaign tour. He's the only politician who actually did rallies. He was able to bring people, despite the corona lockdown, to uh, these platforms to, or to his bus that he was driving through the, through the country. And he was really became this 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 anti-corona voice, uh, which was weird to see because initially he surrounded himself again by anti-vaxxers and then conspiracy thinkers, and at the at a certain moment you saw that entrepreneurs and business owners who felt that all the other parties that were um, making the case about okay we need to take a sensible approach to the corona crisis we need to uh, uh, preserve the healthcare system that the, if if you felt that that wasn't going fast enough if you felt that um, your business was wrongfully closed or that you were an entrepreneur and you were hurting that actually became a quite attractive sell so oddly enough you see that entrepreneurs are 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 among the the the, the the category of voters that tended to vote for Thierry Baudet. And, and um, even though, despite, I mean, what you were mentioning, despite the fact that in November, um, when all those issues came to the fore regarding the, the tweets and the WhatsApp messages and the, and the anti-Semitic undertone in, in a lot of the communication, um, he, he collapsed in the polls. And so he was still able to, deliver a, a very strong result on being the only pure, hardcore, anti-corona uh, campaigner. I think with right-wing populists, the personality of the leader is very important in signaling what the party is. And Wilders, I mean, he has, you know, he's had death threats from Islamists, so he, he sort of stands for a, an aggressive no to Islam. But he also he appeals to a working class electorate, the the, the so called left behinds. Who of course, in the Netherlands, are much less left behind than in the UK, US, or France. And Baudet stands for he he tries to embody the superiority of Western civilization. So he's always quoting big books and thinkers who he may or may not have read, and he um, you know he talks about his own good looks. And he sort of stands for a Netherlands which is better, is a superior culture to um, non-Western cultures. And so that appeals, it also male um, supremacy. So he, he does a lot of kind of uh, misogynistic sex talk about women. So he appeals to that kind of constituency of men, particularly who believe that uh, men and the West are better. And so it's a slightly different appeal than Wilders. But, I mean, it's now become a protest vote, the far right, because I think 20 years ago when it emerged in the Netherlands, we believed it could one day be at the heart of government. That possibility seems to be receding now. And I think a lot of their voters vote for them not expecting them to get into government. It's a sort of protest vote. And I suspect that many Wilders voters, for example, are quite happy that a sort of dour manager like Rutte is in charge rather than an excitable shouter like Wilders. So you vote for Wilders in order to get Rutte, I think is the motivation for some of the people. Yeah. And if I'm allowed just a quick follow-up uh, for either of you, actually, if you've got any sort of intel that you can share on this, but I, I, I you know, I, I think a lot of people outside of um, the Netherlands are, are curious 
just to know how this whole um, anti-Semitic uh, or, or just the whole like conspiracist uh, row with all these leaks that came out of, I think, a series of WhatsApp chats, right? Uh, how all that is, is playing out with the electorate. It seems like, you know, it's always very heartening to see an electorate uh, that is just uh, that has embraced this sort of zero tolerance with anti-Semitism. It seems like the anti-Semitism really interplays in this particular case with just the COVID conspiracies, right? It seems like some of the WhatsApp messages alluded to COVID itself being a sort of George Soros conspiracy, which uh, on top of being uh, rather anti-Semitic, it is also just uh, absolute nuts, right? And and so I wonder kind of how we, we tend to have this image of um, of Amsterdam historically being a um, a uh, an epicenter and a capital of um, uh, Judaism uh, historically, right? A lot of uh, Sephardic influence, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting um, uh, commerce exchange of ideas uh, going on uh, in, in in Amsterdam with other European capitals that was uh, channeled through uh, uh, you know a major um, uh, Dutch Jewish uh, families, and so I wonder if that's if that's playing into the zero tolerance that we've seen uh, Dutch society opposed to um, uh, to uh, to this to this particular row. Is is there any is there anything uh, you'd like to share about this uh, particular case specifically? I mean, it's not zero tolerance. He did win a few seats. I mean, his uh, a large part of his small electorate has stayed loyal, even though apart from being anti-Semitic, he's shown himself to be very unstable. I think that in Dutch discourse, as in the US, as in France, the word Jew has come to connote in the minds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists, a kind of small cultural elite in Amsterdam, in this case, that has undue power, etc. And so um, it's a kind of shortcut way. The word Jew is a shortcut way of referring to being anti-elitist. And and of course, it is in itself anti-Semitic, but it also is a code word for the Dutch elite. I think think what's interesting in this context is that um, because of the the whatsapp message messages because of the 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 outcry from within his party the likely coalition partners if any uh, like the vvd or even the, the the christian democrats were very quickly to rule out going into a coalition with uh, with jerry bodem and that just reinforced what simon was alluding to that like builders, Baudet is now a protest um, party. But, and this is where I think it's interesting, the as this scandal erupted inside Forum for Democracy, there was a splinter party that uh, emerged, which is Ya21. Now, they're supposedly the acceptable face of right-wing populism. Um, they were the, it was founded by, um, the, the Baudet confidants, the number three, four, and five on the, on the electoral list, um, that said, uh, this is enough. We, we can't stomach these, these WhatsApp messages anymore. We can stomach, of course, all the other crazy stuff that's coming out of this party, like the anti-immigrant line or the anti-EU line and, 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 and whatnot. But that apparently was the straw that broke the camel's back, and they're now really presenting themselves as this. Well, we're we're responsible. We'll, we're responsible radical rights. And um, interestingly enough, Rutte, in these coalition formation talks, actually pitched having negotiations with them first, 
to explore whether a coalition would be possible. Now, I think that it's almost 100% guaranteed that that's not going to work. I don't think the D66 constituency would accept doing a coalition deal with YA21, but it's quite interesting to see that Christian Democrats, D66, VVD, all ruled out explicitly not doing a deal with Geert Wilders and Thierry Baudet, but they have never said as such regarding YA21, perhaps because they didn't think YA21 would get it, would get into parliament and or and and um, win three seats, the three seats that are probably necessary to get to a majority. But now that we're there, uh, YA21 is an interesting sort of power factor to take into consideration about what's going to happen in these coalition formation talks. So, so this is a nice segue into the question of, of, of Europe and it and the Netherlands' position in it. Because historically, obviously the Netherlands is a founding uh, member of the EU, but it was arguably a kind of a small country compared to European giants like Germany, France or the UK. And with Brexit, meaning the UK left and Germany mellowing its stance on fiscal integration, the Dutch stance on this issue of fiscal integration has seemed to harden up a bit, or at least it's been much more forceful. And we've seen coalition building, the so-called Hanseatic League, the Frugal Four, uh, all these coalitions on those issues which have created a lot of bad bloods with other capitals, mainly Paris. Um, so is there a feeling that the Dutch haven't quite adjusted to their new status they have nowadays? Um, and could this change with D66's performance? Because there's been a lot of optimism about D66 performance in, in Europe, especially among kind of more, more pro-European figures. But is this going to change fundamentally the, the, the way the Netherlands approaches its relationship to the EU? Uh, usually the, min- the finance ministry ends up going into the hands of a second largest party, which in this case would be D66. But does the fact that they are, quote unquote, pro-European change the balance of power? Or are we kind of misunderstanding what being pro-European means in the Netherlands? Um, so yeah, it, uh, Rem, if you have any few comments on the kind of change of status of the Netherlands and if you expect um, uh, a change in policy with D66 arrival. I think I think this is the particularly if you're sort of in Brussels or watching EU politics, this is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. That um, which way would a a Rutte four administration lean on Europe, given the relative victory of D66? Um, I think there are reasons to be optimistic, in the sense that the tone from the Dutch government is likely to change. I think you would expect a new government to be much more open to European cooperation. Um, but having said that, I don't think a lot is going to change in terms of substance. Uh, I was just reading this afternoon the letter that the leader of, this, of D66, Sigrid Kaag, sent to the group that's trying to explore a new coalition and in which she sort of outlined her priorities It's very vague language on European cooperation, saying we need more European cooperation and we need a strong monetary union. Well, actually, Mark Rutte agrees with 100% of that. The problem is, of course, how you deliver a a stronger monetary union. And uh, Rutte will say, well, primarily the responsibility for that lies with individual member states. The individual member states need to reform and need to make adjustments to their fiscal policies. And it's not up to the European Commission to fix that. Um, 
unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know how you want to explain it, but Gach is 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 not being very specific on that point, leaving a lot of wiggle room in any new coalition agreement. And that connects with, I think, a, a broader structural point about Dutch politics is that, sure, D66 might get the Ministry of Finance, but will that really change the politics? I don't think that we're going to see something like happened in 2018 in Germany, where um, after a period of the Ministry of Finance being in the hands of the CDU under Wolfgang Schäuble, a SPD-run finance ministry all of a sudden really did an about-face on European and Eurozone solidarity. I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't expect that. I think there are structural reasons why um, the Dutch Ministry of Finance is going to stay pretty much doing what it does right now, driving a fairly hard bargain on uh, monetary union issues. Um, I think it's also to the point that I think Simon already mentioned our political leaders are are more managers or are more chaperones and that it, the policy is really driven at the level of the civil service. So the tone might change. That's what politicians are generally for in the Netherlands. But but I wouldn't expect huge changes on on substance. I mean, they lost the battle over, you know, reconstruction funds going to in large quantities to countries like Italy. So we mustn't overestimate this power that they have that they've fully replaced Britain. I mean, I agree with them. I don't see a huge change in terms of um, the management of the Eurozone. I think what you must look out for is the Netherlands pushing against Poland and Hungary. There's a lot of Dutch discontentment about these two countries, not obeying the rule of law, but at the same time getting a lot of European funds. And I think the Netherlands might find more sympathy with a country like France, by pushing against Poland and Hungary rather than against Italy in, in, in its next move. Yeah, and it's, that, that, that's a very interesting one. Uh, that, that's a very interesting thing to explain, Simon. I, I do appreciate that. We've, we've got this sort of vague sense uh, in the wake of the whole rule of law spat that happened a few months back uh, prior to, to the Christmas break when uh, you know countries coming around, the, the EU Council, when all of these negotiations were were happening around the COVID uh, relief package, uh, there, there wasn't, I think, enough transparency as to who exactly was driving this rule of law hardline approach to Poland and Hungary. And, and it seems retrospectively like uh, whether whether it is just um, uh, uh, just a, a, a cover for, for, for the fiscal hawkishness of, of, of the Dutch government uh, or, or if there's sort of a deeper argument there about, you know, we, we've got this set of uh, so-called European values that all EU member states should abide by. And we can't, uh, we can't, we can't tolerate uh, judiciaries in Central Europe veering away from, you know, independence and, and that sort of thing. So uh, I, I do appreciate that clarity. If there's any, if there's anything else you know about uh, why specifically, it seems like the rule of law uh, hardliner coalition was made up primarily of Holland, but also I think uh, some of the Nordic uh, countries, right? Like Sweden. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things to, to to point out about this. The first of all, don't get when you think about the Netherlands and its role in the European Union, don't get hung up on one coalition, in the sense that the Hanseatic League or the Frugal Four was the dominant prism through which outsiders looked at the Netherlands over the past couple of years, and that gave the impression that the Netherlands is this northern stingy creditor country that just wants to sit on its money. 
The problem with that, however, is if you look at different areas of EU policy, for instance, on rule of law, there are different coalitions emerging. There was um, a, a, a to the, like you say, I mean, with France, there was a huge amount of, of commonality when it comes to addressing rule of law. The reason why the Dutch do that is because there's sort of this legalism in our DNA that rule of law is, is holy, but there's also a practical mercantile element to it that if you want the single market to function, which the Netherlands desperately wants, then it makes sense to have transparent judiciary procedures that you can trust, that you can rely on. And so rule of law in the context of the role of the judiciary played into this broader idea, at least that's the way in which it was framed domestically, that it's important to have decent rule of law procedures to allow the single market, which ultimately is the holy grail from a from a from Rutte's perspective about what the EU is for, to allow this single market to function. And I can mention another couple of um, coalitions that that might be somewhat surprising if you only focus on the Netherlands as, again, the leader of the Hanseatics or the Frugals. There is a, a joint Spanish-Dutch non-paper on strategic autonomy coming out. Um, the French and the Dutch uh, published a non-paper on trade and sustainability, which is direct input in terms of shaping um, the EU's new trade strategy. The Dutch and the French were very closely aligned on Brexit in terms of hammering on this issue of the level playing field guarantee. Um, the Dutch themselves drove a very hard, um, they didn't, didn't drive a hard bargain, but they made this very clear statement that for them, um, it's not all about liberalism and uh, introduced an element of uh, investment screening into the single market by uh, making it more difficult for outside countries, primarily China, to invest in the single market if it wasn't clear uh, to what degree the, those investments were connected to state-owned enterprises. And so there's there's um, the, the Netherlands likes these fluctuating ad hoc coalitions depending on circumstances. It it, it echoes with how we started to talk about the Netherlands as under Rutte's leadership as being sort of pragmatic, as being a manager and um, not being uh, vested into big new projects, but also not putting all its eggs in one basket. I think that's typical of of, of Rutte and the Netherlands at this moment. So one one last um, comment before before we before we leave. Simon, you made a very strong case in Financial Times that the reason the Dutch voters like Crossage, something we've covered here, is that while he's not the most brilliant manager, he presents himself as just a manager who isn't animated by any delusions of of a day. Rutte often quotes former West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt. Anyone having visions should see a doctor. And it seems like the Dutch mostly agree. Are the Dutch the last Fukuyama country left standing, you know, si- sipping by the side of people fighting out while they enjoy the end of history? Well, I mean, if you go to the Netherlands, there's all sorts of whining about all sorts of issues, um, often about the train or about So on a day-to-day basis, the newspapers are, fu- are full of whining but it's usually quite uh, small stuff. The country I grew up in until uh, Pimford Town came along in 2002 was immensely self-contented and saw itself as sort of a guideline, a phrase of Dutch politics in the 1970s, which would show the way to unenlightened countries like the US or the Soviet Union or Uganda or whatever. And so we had perfected the world. 
Then Prince Ken comes along, very rowdy populist, kind of first of the breed in 2002, and shouts about all these, the Netherlands is in ruins, things are terrible. He was then shot dead by an animal rights activist, but that kind of lingered, this, this kind of voice of protest, which was later taken up by builders. And so after Pretend, you did have a decade of um, a lot of uh, loud shouting and complaining. That seems to have died away. And I think most of the population is back at the contentment of the 70s and 80s. And, you know, having lived in many other countries in my life, if I lived in the Netherlands, I'd be very contented with the system. It seems to me one of the least bad political systems and places to live in the history of the world. You know, apart from the terrible weather, things function very smoothly. Level of policy are quite high. Uh, levels of income are high. Being Dutch is a pretty good thing. And that's why being Dutch Prime Minister is one of the easiest jobs in world politics. So, Rem, what do you think? Do you think the Dutch are the lucky few who have reached the end of history? Oh, wow. Um, I, I very much enjoy sort of Simon's analysis because it makes it makes me feel good about where I am at the moment. Um, I, I'm not sure Dutch politicians would agree, uh, but neither should we expect them to. So, I mean, I think that our politics is quite... Um, is quite interesting at the moment, despite the fact that it was a very predictable result. That again, we have Rutte in, in his fourth in his fourth term. I think there are big problems, however, that need to be addressed that we really don't have a solution to. I think the climate the climate agenda is uh, is a pretty tough one, also for a country like the Netherlands, which relies on um, on pretty carbon intensive industries uh, for its prosperity. Uh, for for the Dutch to uh, to solve, I think immigration is a huge issue in the Netherlands, like it is in other countries. Huh? Don't get me wrong, but I I think um, you know Simon's analysis is 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 probably right from a comparative perspective. But when you're in the middle of it, these issues like climate, like migration, tend to be very um, quite quite explosive. Um, and I'm I'm not I'm not ruling out at all that we're going to have more. Um, more sort of testing political times ahead, uh, also for this, also for this new, also for this new government. Well, if I remember my Fukuyama correctly, he says at the end the risk is that out of boredom comes new forces of agitation. Um, thank you both to Rem and Simon for coming on the show, for covering the recent election, the triumph of Mark Rutte, the rise of the liberal European D66, and the implications this has. For the rest of Europe, I think this has been a fascinating review. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Rem. So, uh, Simon and Rem are out. What did you think of this episode, Francois? It was great. I'm really happy we were able to quickly react to a major European event, which was a Dutch election. So, a lot to be said. I think well, I'm happy we're covering the Netherlands because the Netherlands, as we said, has usually been considered as one of the kind of the smaller countries in, you know, the um, the, the biggest of the small countries is now now it's kind of the smallest of the big countries they kind of changed changed status over the past five years especially since brexit um i think there's, there's one one thing which which i find really fascinating you know i'm french my political system does not allow coalitions but i find some, there's something so so very um so very fun about you know building your coalition on paper and and, and see how you reach 50 percent there's something kind of very mathematical and very you know for political junkies i find it fun very fun to do uh, but what's interesting is um, the fact you have such a large scope of moderate parties does not mean it has increased governability. But 
if you look at if you look at the kind of electoral uh, spectrum, you have twenty percent far left left parties which aren't really in the running for coalition, and you've got twenty percent far right parties which are excluded from the coalition process. Uh, maybe Yard twenty one, but probably not. Uh, which means out of the sixty percent remaining, you need to find somehow a fifty percent majority. Um, so that's that's why you have you have months and months of negotiations now. I think the uh, cordon sanitaire on, on the far right is much stronger than on the left. Um, but still, it's a very pretty impressive feat you have to do to be able to find a majority out of some kind of very small scope of the total electorate. Yeah, the, the, the hidden variable here, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a very important point there is that we tend to think of a country like Holland and its neighbors as this sort of uh, end of history uh, theater, right? Is this the, the idea that a lot of the old time uh, sort of, you know, class conflicts, social conflicts have sort of faded and have uh, given way to uh, to a new set of cleavages, right? Mostly around social and society, oh, society issues, right? Like socially, socially liberal versus socially conservative, with with a big uh, a pension, with a with a big uh, uh, space for sort of fiscal fiscal um, fiscal debates. But uh, what I, what I thought was also interesting is, is it's not it's not just that. Um, you know, increased moderation does not equate with uh, increased, uh, abil- you know, the, the ability to, be, to, to the, the ease of governability, right? These coalitions are still having to, uh, you know, uh, be formed and it's not, not an easy uh, process, even though the Dutch public as a whole has greater congruence of views than, than in other European countries. It's, it's also the fact that it's a very, sp- it's an incredibly splintered spectrum. There's, there's a mosaic of parties, and that what comes with that is the uh, the the difficulty of aligning all of these different egos and all of these different political careers and have them line up uh, nicely in a government coalition that it, where like all the cabinet is go- is going to want to get behind a single agenda. And that's that's hugely uh, that that's hugely problematic sometimes. And uh, I think I think they've uh, they've mentioned towards the start um, uh, some of that in, in the context of the child welfare scandal where. Um, different ministers were had different responsibilities in the in the scandal where the government was accusing uh, a, a huge spectrum of the population wrongly, uh, but accusing it nonetheless of abusing child we- child, uh, child child care benefits, child welfare benefits. I think so. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, a, a splintered political spectrum, um, a very protracted process of negotiations in order to form a government, and yet. Uh, you have this uh, prime ministerial, um, you know, aura that is uh, that still revolves around Mark Rutte and, and, and his ability to kind of bring uh, bring the central right together on a fiscally uh, conservative, socially liberal line and kind of drive uh, drive the country forward as a as a major player in in the EU. Yeah, I thought the idea that Simon presented that essentially the Netherlands has been run by one large but maybe splintered centrist party. You know, it makes me think of the way politics works in countries like South Korea or or Japan, where there isn't the same kind of uh, ruling party opposition dynamic. Rather, the kind of tensions are within one major dominant ruling party. I think there's, there's something um, similar there. But speaking of, of coalitions, I also like the other comment he made about how the the role of the Netherlands in the EU, because from from a French perspective. When you think about Netherlands, Netherlands and the way they interact with other European uh, member states, is often on fiscal integration they end up being uh, the bad, uh, bad cop, 
and ending up being at odds with France, which is playing a bit more of a of a, of a good cop role. And that that is clear. I'm not sure that's going to change that much. Uh, D66 or not D66, uh, I think that's here to stay. But what's interesting is the way the way benevolence function is very transactional, and I think that's something something Rem made very clear. On different issues, you'll get different coalitions. Um, on trade, you'll get coalition with French. On on the strategic autonomy, you'll get a coalition with Spanish. I thought that's a really interesting concept. Actually, it's a f- um, fun pet project of mine. I have on the side. Uh, I've tested, I've place tested it a few times, but I'm I'm developing a game simulating uh, EU politics in which you play a um, European member state uh, coupled with a, a political party. You know, kind of uh, from anything between far right to far left. And you've got a set of agendas on different issues: NATO, trade, immigration, and think of it as kind of a major tug of war on those seven different issues. What's interesting is on some issues, the Netherlands and Poland will end up being a loggerheads, but on other issues, they end up working together. Or same thing with France and Germany or France and Italy. Um, and I think that's something people have to understand in the way the EU functions. I think Netherlands takes that to another level, which is on different issues, they'll create different coalitions. But the coalitions change all the time, you know, south, south versus north, east versus west on different issues. Uh, and I think that's something you, you, you have to accept and understand. On, on some issues, you have to make uh, coalitions with strange bedfellows. And I think that's the way EU politics works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I thought was was also very interesting, which is almost um, which almost doesn't doesn't even come naturally in, in these conversations, because it's obviously, um, you know, very um, endogenous fact that is very particular to the Dutch context is the particular way they've dealt with uh, migration and um, and not just the sort of the um, colonial uh, colonial migration that that uh, that they've had, uh, having been a pretty pretty sizable empire with with the Indonesian communities, and I think uh, to, to a lesser extent, the Dutch Antilles have also been a source of migrant inflows. But uh, the way that the country is um, has has dealt with you know the uh, Islamic influence um, and some of these parallel pockets of Dutch society that have I, I think we're still slated to have an episode in the not so distant future with. I am Hirsi Ali, which which is obviously who's obviously still I think a rather a prominent figure in Dutch uh, life, uh, and I, I thought uh, we, we we didn't necessarily cover some of that, but that was implicit in in our conversation around uh, the, the the hard right uh, kind of coalitional politics. Uh, anyhow, it was it was a pleasure, and thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, catch you at another episode of Uncommon Decency. See you next week.